listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Coming up, the world's most expensive cities. How much superannuation are you withdrawing and is it enough? And will we see a Santa rally this December? It's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Thursday, the 30th of November, 2023. On Market Day, we'll speak with Jody Fitzgerald from Morningstar to see what happened on the markets and whether we'll see a Santa rally in December. But first, to the world's most expensive cities. And while the cost of living in Australia may be rising, it would appear not as fast as some other places in the world. Singapore has maintained its position as the world's most expensive city because of high transport prices given its limit on car ownership and it tied with Zurich because of the strength of the Swiss franc. Geneva, New York and Hong Kong round out the top five in the Economist Intelligence Unit's Worldwide Cost of Living Survey. As for Australia's biggest cities, well, they've actually fallen down the ladder. Sydney from 11 to 16, Melbourne from uh, 26 to the 15th, most expensive, other way around, actually, 15th to 26th. For more, I spoke with Bashali Bharachaya from the EIU. Bashali, Australian cities have fallen down the list this year. Why? Is it a functioning of easing pressures or just that the cost of living is rising faster in other parts of the world? So all the five Australian cities that we cover in the Worldwide Cost of Living Index have fallen down our ranks this year. But um, that does not mean that the cost of living crisis has eased at all for Australians. In fact, by our calculations, inflation in all of these five cities has risen by almost as much this year as it did last year. So absolutely no easing of pricing pressures. It is also worth keeping in mind that this is a point in time survey. So the survey for 2023 was conducted between August and September this year. So we are comparing prices at a certain point of time in the year. Now, uh, you're right that the Australian cities have still fallen down our ranks. And the reason for that is that our index compares cost of living at a global level. And it, it is, it compares cost of living relative to New York City. So to be able to do that, we convert the prices that we collect in local currencies, and we convert them into US dollar values, which means that the Australian currency, which has depreciated against the US dollar over the past year, has outweighed the impact of high inflation for Australian cities. So inflation is still quite high for Australians, but the cities have slipped down our ranks because of weakness in the currency. Understood. Okay, so to what extent as a whole are global cities more expensive? There are some cities that have reported lower inflation than Australian cities, for example, New York, and even the Chinese cities, they have all reported lower inflation than Australian cities. But at the same time, there are lots of cities that have reported higher inflation than Australian cities, such as cities in Europe. In fact, Europe as a region has seen some of the highest rates of inflation. Um, uh, European cities are among, uh, uh, there are quite a few European cities among the top 10 most expensive cities in our list. In fact, uh, cities across Western and Eastern Europe are among the biggest movers up on our list. I know this is a very broad question. But are there any trends that you're noticing in this report? 
There are actually, it's a very good question. Thank you. So uh, at a very global level, when we are looking at prices, we there's a, there's a very, there are some very clear trends that stand out. So utility prices, which have seen the lowest pace of inflation at a global level. And that's interesting because last year's, in last year's survey, utilities actually saw the highest pace of inflation. And the slowdown this year probably suggests the uh, waning impact of the energy price shock that we saw after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, food inflation is the highest this year. And I, I think that sort of is true for all the cities, most of the cities on our survey. Food inflation has been very sticky around the world. The other category where we have seen very high inflation at a global level is transport. And, and that's interestingly also true for Australian cities, which have seen the highest rate of inflation for transport. For Australia, of course, very high petrol prices is partly what is uh, pushing up the cost of transport for Australians. What makes the world's most expensive cities expensive? Well, um High prices is usually a factor of strong consumer demand. And typically there are two reasons behind that. Either the city is a popular and very busy business hub or the uh, citizens or, or the people in those cities uh, enjoy high income levels. And if you look at the cities at the top of our index, to some extent, both of these factors are true. So we have Singapore at the top once again this year, again, a business hub with high levels of income among uh, people living in the city. Uh, another factor that is often responsible for cities moving up our index is how their local currencies have fared. So if the currencies have strengthened against the US dollar, then that pushes cities up. That has been a factor for the Swiss cities that have moved up our index this year. And just finally, um. How was this report used? Uh, I mean, what's done now? Um, who uses it and why? So the report actually has quite a few different uses. Uh, the first thing that sort of is, it is used to calculate the cost of living. So if you are a company that has employees around the world and you know you are sort of sending people to different parts of the world and you want to sort of uh, think about how you can rightly assess the salaries you need to pay them, then this is a very useful benchmark. But then it's also used by companies to assess what kind of prices they need to, um, they need to, uh, how, how they need to price their goods, how they need to uh, pay salaries for their employees and all kinds of things, really. That is Bashali Bhattacharya from the EIU speaking about the world's most expensive cities. Let's go now to superannuation where there are calls for the government to set up a one-stop shop for information on super to help simplify the transition to retirement. So a survey of 1,100 Australians aged 65 and over by Super Consumers Australia found 61% of retirees are drawing on their super at only the minimum legislated rate but often deliberately. Many say it is sufficient for their needs. However, 19% of those said they thought the minimum was a government recommendation. For more, I spoke with Gerard Brody from Super Consumers Australia. Gerard, why are many retirees opting just to withdraw their minimum amount in superannuation? Well, our research, which looked at uh, 1,100 uh, people over the age of 65, found that uh, there is a, a lot of people 
adopting, uh, often deliberately, uh, to draw down a minimum. Uh, that's because they're either telling us that it is sufficient for their needs, it's enough for them to live on. Some of them have got advice um, to, to do that, um, and others are doing it for, for tax purposes. While many say um, it's enough for their needs, I think your report said something like 56%, there's still another large cohort that that I guess aren't doing so. Does it mean that some people are living frugally um, during this cost of living crisis? Well, overall, our research found that 80% of retirees are actually doing okay or living comfortably. But there is a subset of 20% that are doing it tough. And amongst those people who are renting and people who are living with a disability are more likely uh, to be doing it tough. So there's certainly many people in the community that are, are, are finding things difficult at the moment. Okay, so given a large proportion are doing okay, why do you think that is? Well, I think that many people do have a range of uh, income sources, uh, either they're continuing to work uh, into their uh, even though they are retired, you know, in the older age bracket, some of them have, uh, you know, plenty of money in their superannuation, so are able to draw down at the minimum um, and and have enough to live. Uh, others have income sources outside of their superannuation, which is contributing a- as well. So I think it's a mixed bag when we look at, um, you know, how people are doing drawing down on on their superannuation. Still, um, I think uh, quite a, nu- a number of people don't understand that they can withdraw more than the minimum amount. Can you go into that and what the role of the government is in all of this? And I guess why is there a benefit to withdrawing more than the minimum amount if a lot of these people, I guess, are saying that, hey, what we're getting at the moment is enough, is sufficient? Yeah, around 19% of people told us that they withdraw the minimum amount because they perceived it as a government recommendation. And, and that's not what it is. So that really told us there is a gap of un, gap in understanding there amongst uh, some portion of the community. That The survey and other questions and, and results also indicated there was a lot of confusion around the interaction between rules relating to superannuation, social security, taxation, uh, and, and that really um, confirmed for us that it's a, it's a complex system, um, put, demanding a lot actually from retirees uh, when when it comes to um, informing themselves to make decisions around around their retirement income planning. I think what it means for government, we're calling on government to uh, help people through um, bringing together all of the types of information and tools that the government uh, makes available through. Uh, things like Money Smart, but also through uh, social security and taxation websites to bring them all together into one place to make it easier for people to get access to that information. Um, we're also calling for um, stronger consumer protections in, in the retirement stage of superannuation itself. We've got quite a few protections now in the accumulation stage, like My Super as a default product, We've got the performance test as well, which uh, ensures that uh, funds are, are reaching a certain performance. We don't have the same sorts of protections at the retirement stage at this at this stage. We'd like that that revisited. Jared Brody there from Super Consumers Australia. Now, market day on the SBS on the Money podcast. The Australian share market saw a late rally today. The S&P ASX 200 up 0.7%, 7,087. For more, I spoke with Jody Fitzgerald from Morningstar.
The stream market's actually pretty flat today after a muted session on Wall Street. Most of the big moves that we're actually seeing at the moment is really in bond markets and commodity markets. So bond markets, we've seen a rally predominantly as the market is starting to anticipate that the rate hiking cycle is coming to an end and anticipating cuts and more likely to happen you know, sometime in the next 12 months. Yeah, what do you think? We've seen some more commentary out of the US in terms of the direction of US interest rates. We saw the inflation number come out of Australia yesterday, suggesting that the chances of a rate rise in December uh, is almost non-existent. Although what happens in February after the, the quarterly number comes out in January is still to be um, still to be seen. What do you think is the outlook and the implication for investments? Yeah, look, I think the outlook seems to change on a daily basis for the market's perception of the outlook. So what's really driving the markets at the moment is interest rate expectations and the view of what might happen with regards to policy. So yesterday we had the CPI number come out and it was softer than expected. So it's good news with regards to the battle against inflation. However, that number is still high. It's still at 4.9%. And when you actually have a look at uh, trimmed inflation, which is the number that the RBA will focus on more, that is actually at 5.1%. So that's still well and truly above the 2 to 3% range. I think it's perfectly reasonable, though, for the RBA to pause and wait for more data to come through. The CPI number that we get on a monthly basis is not as uh, rich as the full quarter data. Uh, and I really think that what uh, getting an understanding of how the retailer will actually spend over this Christmas period will be an quite an important data point that will need to be taken into consideration. So because of the lags in monetary policy, it's perfectly rational for the RBA to actually pause and wait for more affirmative data to come through on whether or not inflation is going to continue to go down or if there is risk to the upside and that further hikes may or may not be needed. With regards to the US Fed, I think it's sort of a similar situation where the meeting um, minutes came out recently and there seemed to have been a unanimous sort of decision amongst the Fed officials that, in fact, they thought that interest rate policy was where it needed to be, but that they would be willing to step in and fight inflation. So a very hawkish tone. But then since then, you've had a few of the uh, Fed officials come out on a more dovish note. And that has really caused the market now to start to anticipate that, in fact, further hikes are not likely to be needed. Again, I think the data over there is very... um uh, different with regards to their inflation is certainly coming down a lot faster than ours. They are still, however, at extremely low levels of unemployment. Their GDP growth is on, surprising on the upside and their retailer, unlike ours, is actually extremely strong at the moment, their retail sales. So I think there's still some risk to the upside for inflation and that they are signalling that they're willing to step in and fight it because inflation expectations is a really important uh data point that they need to anchor within the within the markets. I guess one of the key inputs for inflation that we've seen in recent times is that of petrol prices, hence oil prices, right? It's been a little bit all over the place, but now we get this key OPEC plus meeting later tonight. Just how important will it be and what's the market expecting? Yeah, so Brent crude oil is actually up around 2% today leading into this meeting. The market is actually anticipating that there'll be further cuts to supply. Uh, the expectation is around a million dollars a barrel a day is likely to be cut. And that will probably come through from the Saudi Arabia actually rolling over their production cuts. And effectively, this is so OPEC plus can support the oil price um, coming into a softer period. And finally, where do you see the opportunities for investors at the moment? 
Most markets are roughly fair valued. Some are overvalued. So there's very little opportunities with regards to valuation opportunities at the moment. So maintaining a diversified portfolio is really important and key. Uh, bond markets, so even though we have seen a rally in bond markets, with the running yield that you can get from a 10-year bond, it's really still important to have those in your portfolio, particularly if you believe inflation will eventually come back within that 2 to 3% band. But for us, we're looking in places like emerging markets. We're finding a lot of fair value opportunities there where markets are actually trading below their fundamental fair value uh, and making sure that we have a very diversified portfolio that can withstand the various economic paths that we may take from here. Can I ask you one more question off notice? Because we're at the end of the month, November. December, mm-hmm. we all start talking about a Santa rally, right? Is that is that something you're anticipating? Look, a Santa rally is, uh, look, it's one of those things that everybody likes to anticipate, see happening, et cetera. I think at the moment, though, that the that one element that's driving market being interest rate expectations, it's that ultimately that will impact where we go from here effectively. So those traditional Santa rally concepts and so forth, I just think will be swamped by any data points that indicates whether or not central banks will cut, increase or stay. Um, so I think, you know, trying to predict a short-term move in the market is is almost a fool's errand and it's best to look through that short-term noise to fundamentally what makes sense from an investment perspective. That's Jody Fitzgerald there from Morningstar. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision.